had a great run with them for the next five years and grew the company from, um, you know, kind of 110 million to closer to 500 million. And grew EBITDA to, you know, about 100 and, I think it's 125 million or something. In 2017, we, we did that. So this little company that, you know, we started 14 years earlier and paid, you know, $30 million for, uh, we sold HB4 for just under 1.6 billion. Tell us a little bit about how you went from shipping clerk to chief executive of business. That's not the typical. Who joins us on the podcast today with an operator turns into private equity investor, but also a shipping clerk that turned into a chief executive officer. Ted, if you could give us a 60 to 90 second breakdown of you, please. Well, I'm a long time business person. I, I started in uh, 1973 as a shipping clerk working at a factory that made uh, sealants and adhesives. I worked my way up over the next 20 years to become CEO of that company as CEO, expanded it to the point where it was sold then to PPG Industries. Shortly thereafter, I decided I wanted to try and do something different and uh, developed a thesis to build a much larger adhesives and sealants company, found a private equity backer to support me and uh, did that for 14 years and ultimately sold that company successfully to a public company called HB Fuller, traded on the New York Stock Exchange and uh, helped with the integration and ultimately stayed on as the chief operating officer and ran the uh, three global business units until I left about a year and a half ago to join Iron Path Capital as a, as a partner at Iron Path since then and, and currently. Well, thank you very much. Short, brief history of what has been multiple careers in there, Ted. So plenty to unpack in that. So let's kick off with the growth of of that business of uh, raw ad- adhesives and sealants. You developed your own thesis, as you mentioned. You then worked with Quad C to develop that. You sold to multiple private equity firms or recapped multiple private equity firms along the way. It gives a deep dive into that journey. There's a ton of people that would love to learn from your experience. What I wanted to try and do, which was, I, I think, a little bit different at the time, I wanted to use the experience that I had and the knowledge that I had to build a business, you know, that was was large enough that uh, I wouldn't have to sort of start trying to like invest the, you know, two hundred fifty thousand dollars and buy some small business and try and build it up, right? So I wanted to match my capabilities with a business, and I wanted to do it on my own, and uh, felt like the adhesives and sealants industry was fragmented enough where it was a really good opportunity to do a buy and build kind of strategy. So I spent I spent about, I don't know, eight months really working on the thesis and not just the thesis, but really the business plan right down to, you know, cataloging and evaluating all the potential sort of acquisition candidates, defining what a platform company should look like, really trying to understand, you know, why this kind of a buildup would be successful, you know, kind of looking at the capital light nature of the industry, the generally consistent cash flows that are generated, the fact that a really well-run adhesives company should grow about twice as fast as GDP because of the change from mechanical fasteners into adhesives. So put, put, put all that together into a pitch, right? A business plan and a pitch. I think we mailed that to about 12 different private equity firms at the time. Uh, I also had the help of a local kind of buy-side banker here out in Southern California. His team helped pull us all together with me. 
And we, uh, and then I went out and pitched it. Surprisingly, I got quite a bit of interest. So we were, you know, we, we pitched it, including, you know, having kind of the LLC agreement pulled together, all the, all the monetary terms, you know, what I was looking for, et cetera, and put it in a place where it could be diligenced, right? So, you know, we know we were going to be dealing with private equity firms. The pitch was not going to get the deal right. They needed to be able to do, you know, some real diligence, essentially on me and, you know, my experience and career to check out and challenge what I was uh, what I was saying about the fragmentation of the industry, you know, the characteristics of the industry, et cetera. And we had really three PE firms really compete for the opportunity to back this. And uh, at the time I asked for, you know, support of about $100 million of equity. We thought that that kind of equity could help us build a company of, you know, 350 million in sales and, you know, maybe 70 or 80 million in EBITDA, something like that. That's how it all started. It's really fortunate. Found a really great firm in Quad C Management. The importance of the buy side support that I had at the time was actually to help me do my diligence on the private equity firms, right? So getting advice about, you know, just very simple things like how old's the fund, you know, have they, has the team had any, you know, experience in the same industry that you've been in? Have they had previous portfolio companies that had invested in specialty chemicals, et cetera? You know, I think one area that maybe often gets overlooked is, you know, what kind of chemistry, you know, do you have with the partners and, the, you know, the VPs and principals and associates or, you know, the people in the firm? Because you're really, you're really going to be working with them for three to five to seven years and in a pretty, pretty intense way, right? So that was really important. So I got good advice there you know, ultimately selected Quad C management. And, you know, the way we looked at it and the way I looked at this from the very beginning is I was not just an executive. I wanted to really be an, an investor operator, if you want to think about it that way, right? So I was just as interested in trying to really understand how private equity worked, what were the things that they were looking at in terms of, you know, risk mitigation, buy and builds are are big responsibility in the sense that they can get bogged down if something goes wrong, right? So if you you make your first two acquisitions and then something goes wrong, it stalls the progress, makes the investor, you know, the PE group a little less bullish on the idea of putting more time, money, and capital into the program, right? So so there's all, all those kinds of things of really trying to go into this with, you know, eyes wide open, having a view that You've got to do two things with a buy and build, right? You've got to show that you can organically grow the things that you're buying, and you've got to show that you can improve them operationally while at the same time, you know, spending a lot of time looking at acquisition opportunities and then how they might fit strategically. And then the one other thing I would say is that I had a pretty careful view, but also one that's, that was relatively easy to communicate, right? So I, I just had a simple graph on the thing that said, you know, these are the markets that are really attractive for adhesives and sealants. So I had a, a number of markets for things like aerospace, defense, you know, automotive, certain construction markets, et cetera. And then here are the technologies that are really important on the other side. Initially, I was really focused on North America, so I didn't really have any geographic components beyond that at that point. Ultimately, that did change. But and then I tried to stay true to that. Right. So that was the other thing is the discipline to really follow the strategy when you're executing it, right? Because, you know, you always the shiny, little shiny bells and whistles that show up as you're uh, looking at acquisition opportunities, right? And uh, and so we eliminated stuff that, you know, we could have talked ourselves into, but we really wanted to stay true to the 
to the strategy itself. That's how it all started. It's a tough climb at the beginning because, you know, I had, uh, I was known in the, in the industry, but we hadn't actually done any deals. And so, you know, the, the real challenge is the uh, acquisition of the platform company. One thing I can tell you is that, you know, you, de you define what the perfect platform company is, and then you very quickly realize that there, there are no companies like that. So, you know, you, you have, uh, you have to kind of get around the idea that you're going to look for like maybe, you know, 70 or 80% of the characteristics that you've identified in your sort of uh, ideal platform company. And if you can get somewhere near that, you have to start, right? So, and we did, we did that when, that was when we acquired Royal Adhesives in 2003, which was our platform company. You know, at the time it was, you know, 35 million in sales and 5 million in EBITDA much smaller than the platform company we we're hoping to get, but but a good comp platform company, nonetheless, nice facility, good labs, good team. And then over the next five years, we, you know, we did five additional acquisitions through that, the, you know, it's kind of 110 million in sales and 15 million in EBITDA and, you know, got to the point where it was time to trade some liquidity for Quad C, Put the put the company on the market, and before we really got it out of the starting blocks, we had the uh, you know 2009 Great Recession, as they call it. You know, like like most companies, we had you know about a 30% reduction in sales just the next year, and uh, and so we we just went to work. We 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 looked at a way to to do some consolidation. Uh, we closed a plant, invested in our bigger plant in South Bend, moved that, and by the end of 2010, we had recovered completely from the recession. We're on track to, you know, do sort of 60 million of EBITDA and about, you know, 110 million in sales, but at much higher margins and profitability. And then, and then we went through, uh, you know, went through a process and recapitalized with, uh, with Arsenal Capital, which is another really, really great firm. Had had a lot of experience, especially chemicals. Had had a couple of kind of operator partners, like I'm doing now, which was yeah. I got to pick the first one. After that, you know, it's uh, you know, you you don't have complete control over what happens as a CEO of a of a, a private equity backed company. Have some influence, but not complete control. But you know, Arsenal was the one we wanted. The thing was close. And so uh, we all agreed we'd go with uh, with Arsenal. Had a great run with them for the next five years and grew the company from, you know, kind of 110 million to closer to 500 million. Did another, I don't know, eight or nine acquisitions during that period and grew EBITDA to about 100 and I think it's 125 million or something like that. And then had the opportunity to recapitalize again with a third PE firm, which was American Securities, which is a really great PE firm. Also had a lot of experience in special chemicals, newer funds, so forth. And by that time, we were supercharged with M&A. So we were actually closing deals as we were closing the sale to uh, American Securities and did another four deals right after that. And within two and a half years, we were getting a lot of inbound interest from strategics, much larger adhesives and sealants companies. And uh, and we decided that, you know, that would be it would be the time to sort of do that, you know, that that final kind of sale, you know, <laughs> to a strategic buyer. And then in 2017, we we did that. So this little company that, you know, we started 14 years earlier and paid, you know, $30 million for, we sold HB Fuller for just under 1.6 billion. 
and then um, and then by that time, you know, I, I was really invested in Royal and I wanted to make sure that the team and everybody was well placed. So I, I stayed on who well, I was asked to stay on by HB4 and then help with the integration of Royal, which was which was a big deal. It was the largest the largest acquisition in HB Fuller's history. We were about a third of the EBITDA. You know, we increased their EBITDA by about a third. And so it was a big, important deal for the CEO, Jim Owens at the time. And he, he wanted to make sure that it, it all went well and asked me to stay, which I did for a, a period of time. And then, uh, and then together, we sort of came to the view that there was an opportunity to do some additional restructuring. And we, um, we reorganized the business uh, from kind of five business units, three of which were regional and two of which were market-based, to three global market-based operating units supporting about 30 global markets. And so I stayed on actually as COO and managed all that reorganization and then led those three business units until it was, everything was all stood up and in good shape. And then then I retired at that point. So I don't know, it's probably a little bit more than you wanted to hear, but that's sort of the the history. And, uh, and it's, why, um, it's why I have such a passion for kind of private equity, right? Because it, it's, I, I say this a lot to people is, uh, I think private equity has helped democratize in many ways, the ability for somebody who, you know, is really good at something but doesn't have a lot of their own money to partner with somebody to build something really great and interesting and then create wealth, you know, create wealth for themselves. And, and uh, you know, that's it's uh, it's it's hard work. But I, I mean, I can tell you, I, I made more money, you know, in my private equity world than, than I did in the public company world I had before that and after. So it's an industry I'm very passionate about anyways. Congratulations to you, Ted, for those, uh, for those achievements. One of the key areas of difficulty that we speak to a lot of private equity firms and portfolio companies is they can do the deals, identify the opportunities, and they can get the deal flow. But when it comes to integrating those businesses, it's not gone as well for those businesses. A lot of them still operate as single entities. A lot of them haven't got the same ERP systems, cultural, cultural alliances, et cetera, leadership teams. What advice would you share with chief executives, senior leaders of portfolio companies, but also private equity executives to make sure they're getting that right and improving their processes around it? I think you've got to be really intentional, right? So, and, then that, and that's just not intentional around the process of integration. It's more intentional around the idea of, you know, what is it you're really trying to build and what kind of culture are you creating to be able to achieve that, right? So, so you know, in my case, going into it, understanding it was a buy and build. And, you know, I had quite a bit of experience integrating, you know, previous acquisitions at the companies that I've worked at before. You know, the idea really was to, you know, again, that, that's why that that little matrix of like, you know, the markets you want to be in, the technologies, you know, what kind of characteristics do you want to have? I mean, I, I, I walked around all the time telling people, look at, you know, you know, our, you know, our company should be able to grow like twice GDP. So we really need to figure out how to do that. Right. Uh, you know, our gross margin should be in excess of 35 percent, which means we're creating you know, and at least in our industry, we're creating value beyond just some markup of the cost of manufacture. And, you know, we should we should be shooting for EBITDA margins, you know, 20 percent EBITDA margins, which would you know suggest that, you know, we're we're also getting the, the value and that we're a well-run company. And then the fourth one is, you know, we should really be striving to get working capital at about 15 percent or less of sales, which suggests that, you know, we're, uh, you know, well-operated company. Right. We, you know, we collect our money, we, we pay our bills and we manage inventory like really, really well. Right. So. 
yeah, I was trying to make it kind of simple so that message could permeate down the permeate down the organization. And then as you're evaluating acquisitions, you know, you really need to kind of, you know, put the time and effort in to determine like, you know, what kind of uh, cost synergies are you, are you looking at? What kind of growth synergies are you looking at? And then how do you expect that you're going to get that? And then how do you, again, how do you take this acquired business and integrate them into your kind of culture, right? And I always thought, you know, we we tried to have, again, this really open culture with very clear kind of simple approaches to what we were trying to accomplish. You know, that transparency is great because, you know, it's it's very clear pretty quickly the people that you acquire, whether or not they, they're they going to buy into this, the you know, to, to that approach. And if they're not, you know, you, you see it pretty quickly, right? And so you, you can make changes pretty, pretty early on. And then we, you know, again, you know, I, I always, I always took the time to try and understand the history of the businesses we were acquiring. And I think that's really important because at some point somebody actually understood how to make money in those businesses. Right. And, and, and so that core kind of added value activity was there. And sometimes, and, and many times it's still there. Hopefully it's always there. Right. If it's really enduring, but a lot of times people forget it, right. They forget why you're, they, they make money in the first place. And so, you know, spending a lot of time on, on, on really trying to understand that, you know, we go through, uh, and this is a process that, that, the you know, was really well done at American securities. Uh, when I was there, they do a, they do a process, uh, what they call the shared vision process. You know, part of what happens is with a PE firm is, you know, you do, you, you, when you're looking at a target, you're, you're doing the due diligence, you're looking at their materials, you're looking at all their data, you have some access to management, but not unfettered access to management. You have typically a banker that's involved in the process that's helping management, particularly in lower middle market, you know, they're helping management really think through their strategy, right? So it may not even be management strategy, if you think about it that way, right? It's something that they've, you know, determined as part of the sales process. And then you make all kinds of assumptions and and you've got your investor thesis that you do, and I won't say in a complete vacuum, but 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 with without the unfettered access to the management team. And it's really only after you close the deal that you have that unfettered access. And you know, that's when American securities would would do two things, right? They they would sit down with the management team and say, look, we're going to send you all of our all of our due diligence information, right? You're going to send you the market reports. We're going to send you the KP, you know, the accounting reports. Uh, we're going to send you the environmental uh, reports, and we want you to take a look at. We're going to show you our thesis. You know, we're going to give you that, and we'll give you, you know, a month to go through, work your way through those materials, and then we're all going to meet somewhere, and we're gonna, we're gonna, you know, sit in a room for three days and try and determine, you know, what our shared vision is, right? You know, do you agree with our thesis that we came up with? And a lot of times, you know, you'd think they would because you're, you know, you're actually pulling it out of them in the management presentations. But again, it's not always as 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 clear during that part of the process, given that it's, you know, you're 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 negotiating a transaction. You're really not sitting and, you know, developing a, a real strategy and a real vision. And so, anyways, that's that's, you know, I I uh, you know, that's what I tried to do at at Royal. Probably not is probably not as with a much process as American, as American securities, but, you know, we would do, we would have, uh, you know, we would have, you know, just, you know, kind of Gantt chart 
you know, organized integration plans, but we would ensure that we had every element of the company involved in the integration and that and somebody was accountable for each one of those functions uh, during the integration. And then and then we would, in the case of Royal, you know, I, I personally led most of the integrations until we got, you know, much larger, right? So it's, you know, a little bit easier in that case because, you know, I, I, you know, I sort of had a strong view as to what we were trying to accomplish. That's something that I really take as a best practice now, right? So, you know, when we're working at Iron Path with firms, we, you know, we're, we're, we're careful to make sure that after the deal closes, we spend time with them, you know, on the strategy, you know, the shared vision, you know, is everybody, is everybody on board and row it in the same direction, you know, developing those relationships again, you know, trying to understand, you know, whether the culture that was there is the culture that, we really want going forward or is it culture that needs some adjustments or is it just perfectly fine? Right. So th those are the kinds of things that I think are doing those things right up front, I think is a real risk mitigator from a investment thesis point of view, because you don't find out like six months later that everybody disagreed with the thesis that you, you know, that underwrote the investment on. Right. So. Well, something you've worked for, you know, multiple private equity firms. You work in a private equity firm now. You've worked with them as a chief exec. You've worked with some pretty large ones, which are well-renowned in, in the US and internationally as well. What's something that you learned from them that you took from these, certainly the larger ones, your arsenals and your American national securities? What have you taken from, from those firms that you learned that you were like, wow, I'll take this into the business I'm running, and would be valuable for others listening. I mean, first, I, I guess everything I've learned about private equity, I learned from, from most of these firms, right? So it's like uh, my uh, in, indoctrination into the into this world. But yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things, right? I'm, I mean, the you know, I was just thinking about Quad C originally were really known for like very rigorous, complete due diligence, right? I mean, they the level of analytical rigor that you get from a PE firm you know, sort of compared to being an operating company, right? Because there's all kinds of other stuff going on in an operating company. And, you know, your accounting person is trying to just sort of figure out how to get stuff done for the quarterly reports and this and that, whether it's a public company or, or you know, or a small private company. That was a real eye-opener to me, right? And I really grew to appreciate these really kind of smart people that come to work for PE firms, but not because they're smart, but because they work so hard. A lot of this stuff is like really, really in the weeds, but having to be able to take, get it, get in the weeds, get the data, and then kind of telescope it so that you get to the big picture. So that's a big thing that I learned. And I actually tried to kind of integrate some of that stuff with uh, Fuller when I went back into the public company world. In fact, we, we upgraded, spent a lot of time upgrading our M&A process as an example, and then you know really kind of revamping how we did diligence. And a lot of big public companies go to third parties for a lot of stuff, right? So, you know, and, and you get it, right? I might do a, a deal every once in a while where we wanted to be able to do deals sort of as part of a, a growth strategy, right? So we'd have organic growth and inorganic growth and kind of grow with a stream of deals, again, built around a strategy, kind of the royal kind of M&A approach and integrated that into, uh, into Fuller. But it's not easy, right? Because, you know, you people aren't trained the same way that they're trained in a, in a PE firm. So so that's that's one. I think uh, I learned a lot from the governance side, right? So you know, sitting on kind of uh, PE boards, there's not as much governance centric as a public company, 
but the principle is kind of the same, right? You're there to offer help and advice, but you're not there to run the company, right? So you're there to support the CEO and the, and the team. And so there's this kind of coaching, sort of creating clarity, not being afraid to like get the issues on the table, but not providing the answers either, right? You know, trying to coach to get the answers. And again, kind of continuing to on a continuum, this idea of a shared vision, right? Because, you know, things change, right? You may be doing just great with your current strategy and then you have COVID or inflation or, you know, this whole whole inflation thing, which, you know, by the way, I mean, I, you know, I, I was around with the inflation of the kind of late 70s and 80s. And, uh, you know, I, I started to recognize things that I thought were pretty clear, but then you realize that most people in companies up until this latest round of inflation never involved in an inflated economy before, right? So we had salespeople that had careers of long time that never really were involved in having to really go out and increase prices as a result of, you know, inflationary pressures and so forth. So these are the kinds of things that you kind of learn to part of the PE board governance to help help people with context and with ideas and with clarity. But in the end, you know, you're evaluating and you're looking at the, you know, the management team's really the ones that got to make the decision and, and execute the execute the plan. And, you know, your job is to make sure that, you know, they're they're capable of doing that. That's another thing I, I, I've taken taken away from them. You know, PE firms tend to be really great about staying focused on big issues, right? Not under so much pressure like a public company would be for every quarter, but able to kind of really balance kind of the short term versus kind of the medium and long term, you know, assuming, you know, think things are going well and you're not, you know, you're not, you're not you know, you're not running into issues with leverage and stuff like that and uh, bank covenants, which, you know, that changes the dynamics quite a bit. But, but again, that's, that's where the PE firms also come in, right? Because their ability to really kind of know and understand, you know, how to work with debt providers and, you know, and the fact that, the other thing I really like about private equity is, you know, everybody's got skin in the game, right? So, you know, when you're in a board meeting, you're in a board meeting with people that are invested essentially the same way as the management is and the limited partners are, which, which again, I think, I think makes governance kind of, you know, clearer and, and more, much more transparent. Makes sense. Appreciate you. Appreciate sharing all of that. And there's certainly a, a lot that can be taken there on, on improving the roll-up process and, and acquisition and integration uh, of, uh, of businesses. So I know from research prior, Ted, you've written two books. One is, which you mentioned at the start, Shipping Clerk to CEO, which I'm assuming is uh, your story. And then the second being, being Buy and Build CEO. So what what inspired you to write a book and you know, tell us a little bit about how you went from shipping clerk to chief executive of business. That's not the typical route. After sort of completing my career and, you know, becoming part of, uh, becoming part of Fuller and before, you know, before I left, I was with some of the, some of the people at American Securities and, you know, one of them said to me, geez, you had really interesting career, uh, you know, you know, you ought to, you ought to write a book, right? And uh, for some reason that stuck with me. And I'd never done anything like it. And I, I started in a very undisciplined way, right? I just thought, well, you know, I'll just write down kind of what I think happened and what was interesting. And and and, and along the journey, I started doing a lot of research. And uh, and one of the one of the issues that w- was really kind of relevant to me was around this kind of um, 
ceiling that, that, that was being created in business between college graduates and, and sort of the high school graduates or, you know, people that don't have a college degree, as an example. My story goes back, you know, almost half a century, right? So it was a little bit different then. You could you could start at the bottom. And while it was would be very advantageous to have a degree, I mean, I, you know, that that was, you know, when, when I was just finishing high school, that was the early days where, you know, everybody should go to college and all that stuff. And uh, I just didn't really want to. And I started working in this factory. <clears throat> you know, I started to be really interested in, you know, I mean, I just sort of fell in love with, you know, manufacturing and operations and and all that. And uh, I just started to learn internally. And then I, you know, and I, and, and I could tell that if I was doing a really good job, I'd get a chance to do another job. Right. So it was really more kind of a step function. And, uh, and then I tried to always like, you know, be friendly and meet people and ask questions. And I was, you know, kind of young and curious and all that. And so, so the book is really kind of around the idea that you can learn, you know, it's almost like, you know, you can learn in different ways, right? And some people learn by doing better than by studying, you know, and reading, you know. So that was the whole idea, right? Is that in and the book I think uh, hit a nerve with, uh, uh, you know, lots of people that uh, you know have ordered it. I've gotten feedback that you know I've given it to my kids, and you know, a lot of you know a lot of kids now are challenging the idea. You know, should I go to college or not, right? And a lot of companies are challenging this idea. You hear it all the time. I, I read something in the Wall Street Journal, actually, I think it might have even been really early this morning after I woke up about, you know, companies now thinking about recruiting directly from high schools, as an example. Right. And you've got big companies, um, you know, that are rethinking at what level do I need to have a call? You know, does somebody need to have a college degree? And a lot of it obviously come because of the you know labor shortages and so forth. But. I think it's I think it's something where, you know, it's kind of overdue. I, I mean, at Fuller, we spent a lot of time developing programs where we could take people working in the plant and move them up into, you know, manager, super, supervisor, management positions. And, you know, at, at the company itself, they had driven the, the college degree thing down so low that, you know, you couldn't even be a supervisor without a college degree, right? And then you have all these really s smart people that didn't go to college working in your factory that could very easily do those jobs that get frustrated because they bring in people from the outside that actually don't have the, the hands-on experience managing those things. And so we turned it around and said, well, why don't we identify those people and then let's 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 help train them to become managers and supervisors, right? So so that's a, a program we call talent or they call talent up now where you know they're identifying talent early and then training them to go forward. So the whole idea, that idea of that book is that I always tell people you shouldn't think because you don't have something that you still can't uh, aspire to do something, you know, bigger than what you're currently doing. Right. And uh, and, you know, it's, I would say it's easy. And but that was my path and it was a really interesting path. It taught me how to network taught me how to find mentors, taught me all these things that are so important for anybody, whether you have a college degree or not in business, you know, it's, you know, you know, again, going back to that, the one thing that I said, you know, about knowing, you know, you need to know, you know, everything about your business, right, is that is you can't know enough about your business is this whole idea about lifelong learning and 
and really kind of, you know, being kind of, you know, sort of aspirational in your thinking. So I, I was trying to get people to temper that by, you know, you know, at each step, be aspirational about something that you can achieve. So, so don't, don't say you want to be the CEO, you know, say you want to be the, you want, you know, you want to, you want to be the manager of the traffic department, you know, at the company where you're currently a shipping clerk, right. Or something like that. Right. You step-by-step is uh, I think a good way to think about how you build your career. Not everybody's going to go all the way to the top, but people can go, people can rise to, to, to their, to their level and they shouldn't be, arbitrarily, you know, cut off because of because of some, you know, uh, educational standard that's put in that may or may not be applicable, right? Now, many, you know, there's lots of educational standards that are very applicable, right? You don't want to have your doctor that hasn't, you know, <laughs> doesn't, you know, hasn't gone to medical school or, you know, but, you know, even things like 100 years ago, most lawyers didn't go to college, right? You know, you would read the law, you'd work with a lawyer, you'd read the law, and that's how you became a lawyer. So I think a lot of this stuff needs to be challenged a little bit more rigorously right as to you know why why do we why do we put in restrictions sometimes when we probably don't we probably don't need to it's quite an inspirational message for a lot of people out there who uh maybe didn't get the qualifications they needed or wanted in order to do what they wanted to do or thought they wanted to do and could move on from that so ted yeah. what are your what are your influences what do you read what do you watch what do you listen to that you'd recommend that others check out I don't know for probably for the last 20 years, I, I read more history than, you know, than anything else. Right. So I don't read as many business books like, you know, I probably did, you know, 30 years ago. But uh, but right now I just uh, I'm just reading right now a book by Walter Isaacson called The Codebreaker, which is, you know, it's about uh, gene editing. And, you know, there's just the science behind, you know, more of the, the kind of the practical implications of all this genetic stuff that's gone on and how they, you know, you can, you can use uh, certain things to cut and cleave the, you know, the, you know, the, the molecules and, you know, you know, all, all the kinds of things that led to, as an example, the COVID vaccine, right? So, so that, that's really interesting. And somebody gave me uh, uh, Elon Musk's book to, uh, to read. I haven't started it yet, but I have that. I've been doing podcasts. I walk, I walk every day and, uh, I've been listening to these uh, podcasts. Like, there's uh, the one that I like right now is um, Business Wars, which is just a kind of high level, but it's uh, it's by Wondries. It's a really interesting. They'll pick like you know competition between like Southwest and American Airlines or Hilton and Marriott or whatever it might be, and it's a really light listening and interesting stories, right? And uh, many times, by the way. You know, a lot of these firms, even before PE was a thing, you know, you know, 80, 90 years ago, people were using private capital to start these businesses, you know, and uh, and build them. So so that that's one. Another one called American Scandal, which is interesting. I like the American Scandal is good because you learn about leadership from the negative side. Right. Because they talk they talk about people that are have done horrible things. But um but it, but it kind of tells you like what not to do, right? Now they do a lot of uh, a lot of American scandals. Uh, you know, there's a lot of episodes around around businesses, government, and et cetera. So that that's a for me that's a good one as well. Well, appreciate you uh, sharing all of that, Ted. If anybody wishes to reach out, how best do they get in touch with you, please? Yeah, so the easiest way is actually go to uh, tedclarkauthor.com. There's a little place in there you can send messages and so forth. So. Uh, that's good. Or uh, or just uh, Ted C at ironcapital.com. So 
that's the, those are the two best ways. Perfect. We'll put that in all in the, in the show notes. Well, Ted, thank you very much for joining us. Appreciate your insight in operator turned private equity investor, shipping clerk turned CEO, which I don't think I've said on the podcast as of yet. So congratulations <laughs> for that. And thank you very much for sharing all of your insights today. My pleasure. Thank, thank you for having me out. And as always, thank you very much for everybody joining us and listening in. Should you ever need support with the private equity hiring or portfolio executives across Europe or North America, please do reach out to us at Raw Selection. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe to the podcast and you'll be notified of the next podcast exactly when it comes out. But till the next time, keep smashing it and thank you very much for listening.